Thank you, Ron, and the choir, and all those who labor behind and in front of the scenes, I should say. We appreciate your ministry to us. I sure wish I could have got the uh, rhythm on that last hymn that was torturing me. It just uh, is not my gift, as you know. So I got an amen on that one. So We're looking at Psalm 2 this morning, but uh, let me tell you, when I was a kid, we used to play a game called King of the Hill. How many of you played that game when you were a child? Yeah, King of the Hill. And of course, the objective and the strategy is to knock everybody else off the hill and assume your rightful place as king of the throne, right? I took that game to a whole new level when I was a child. I was ambitious, and so I created a game called King of the Monkey Bars. So uh, you can imagine those dome monkey bars. I would climb to the top and I would sit right in the middle and everybody would try to come up and knock me off and I would throw them down. Every once in a while I got thrown down too. But uh, it hurt when you fell from that height. (laughs) But King of the Hill, that game carries into the business world as well and into life in general. You'll... You'll uh, just observe that in the business world, what's the, what's the name of the game? To climb to the top of the ladder and knock every other pretender off of your throne and assume your rightful place as king of the hill. If you've ever read through your Old Testament, you'll also recognize that you may not necessarily know your Old Testament intimately, but you'll probably realize that God had established his kingdom and every other nation of the world tried to knock that king off the hill. You'll remember Israel time and again fighting with Syria and Babylon and Egypt and Moab and Edom and the Philistines and Assyria and every other nation of the world trying to knock God's anointed ruler off of his throne and take their title King of Kings. You'll remember John the Baptist, when he came, what did he preach about? The kingdom of God is at hand. During Jesus' ministry, he preached about the kingdom of God being at hand as well and himself being the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All through the book of Acts, we see the apostles preaching about the kingdom And even, in fact, at the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry, we find him in prison preaching about the kingdom. Acts 28, 23, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. When they had set a day for him, that is Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. From both the law of Moses... And from the prophets from morning until evening. Acts 28, 30 to 31, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So there is an epic struggle in the world, folks, between kingdoms. There are two kingdoms of the world there is the kingdom of God and his anointed. And there is the kingdom of the darkness and the evil one. There is all others fit into category number two. 
God's anointed is king of the hill. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And we need to understand that this morning. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 2. Now, I told you last time I was just going to preach a series through the Psalms. And I don't know why I told you that. That was a really bad idea. But uh, I enjoy the study. But I've got to tell you, this is a big psalm to tackle. This, this psalm, too, is tricky. And so I want to take a lot of time this morning kind of laying the groundwork, setting the foundation. We'll look at the first couple of sections in the psalm. But I decided to split it over two weeks. There's really no way to get through this psalm in one week and do it justice. So Psalm 2, let's read it together. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for Me, I have installed My King upon Zion, My holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, He said to Me. You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will surely give the nations as Your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He may not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This morning what I thought we would do is, um, you have it there on the back of your bulletin if you want to take a look at it. We're going to examine four startling perspectives from this psalm. We're going to look at four perspectives so that we will rightly exalt God's kingdom and embrace His King. Paul says that you and I as believers have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, right? Colossians 1.13. So what we want to do is rightly understand that kingdom and embrace the king. So let me give you a little background on this psalm if I can. When we taught through Psalm 1, we talked about the two ways. Do you remember that? We talked about the two paths that a person could go down. And as we look at Psalm 2, we need to understand that the two may have originally been united in one psalm. We don't know that for sure. There's no way to prove it. But I want you to notice some of the similarities in the psalms. Uh, Notice that Psalm 1 begins with a beatitude. How blessed is the man, right? And then look how Psalm 2 ends. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's that similarity. There's also the righteous man in Psalm 1 meditates. Day and night on the law of the Lord. And if you'll notice in Psalm 2, um, the, uh, the peoples, when it says they're devising a vain thing, it's actually the word meditating. They're actually meditating a vain thing. So there's the righteous who meditate on the law, and there's the wicked who meditate on futility against God. 
We'll talk about that a little more uh, later. But also, Psalm 2 sort of amplifies this idea of the two ways. Remember we talked about the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous? Well, here we come to this psalm, and what do we see? We see two kingdoms. But one is the kingdom of the Lord, and the other is the kingdom of everybody else and the wicked. And so it only amplifies that theme of the two ways again. So, so it's very possible these, these two psalms were originally linked together. But what I want to say about this is you probably recognize some of these words and some of these verses as being in the New Testament, right? You've probably recognized, uh, surely you are my son, right? And uh, why are the nations in an uproar and devising a vain thing? There is so much of this psalm that appears in the New Testament that I need to kind of take a little time to explain to you um, that, that what we're going to do is interpret this psalm in light of its Old Testament context, okay? This psalm meant something to the people who read it in the Old Testament. It's not all about Jesus. Um, the New Testament apostles applied this, the truths of this psalm to Christ, but, but in and of itself, this psalm is talking about the Davidic rule in Zion. And that in light of uh, what I had Pastor Wine read, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, what did he tell David? Today you're my son, right? In light of this covenant, you're now my son, and I'm giving you a kingdom that's going to endure over all the kingdoms of the earth. And so Psalm 2 is in light of 2 Samuel 7, not reading Old Testament or New Testament passages back into the Old Testament and reinterpreting the Old Testament. Do you understand that difference? Uh, the authority for New Testament resides in the New Testament. The authority for this text resides here in the Old Testament. Its meaning didn't... It, it's, we're not going to take those New Testament passages and read, as, a, as they say, right to left. We're going to read left to right. Does that make sense? We're going to understand this psalm in the way it was originally intended and what it means. So it's best understood in light of Second Samuel 7. Uh, there are, however, as I said, uh, multiple applications to Christ in the New Testament. Um, and most of what the New Testament writers do is they apply a lot of the truths of this passage in light of the gospel going to the Gentiles and Christ's rejection by the Jews. A lot of application of the Old Testament is brought to the New in light of those two truths. Uh, Israel rejected their Messiah and the gospel of the kingdom went to the Gentiles. And so the New Testament writers saw a lot of these truths as applying to that. So clearly there is some relationship to Christ, though. Clearly Jesus is born of David's lineage, right? He has a right to David's throne. He is the son of God in a unique way. And he will ultimately subdue all of his enemies under his feet and assume his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords on the Davidic throne in the future. So there are typologies that we need to see in this. I just want to make sure that you understand I can't go to every single New Testament usage of this psalm because every time it goes to the New Testament, they're explaining something different in the New Testament. Okay? So I hope that's clear to you. But let me just have you look back at Psalm 2 and just say there are four sections in this psalm that we're going to look at. 
this is kind of how I've broken it up. There, there, each one of these sections has somebody speaking. You'll notice quotation marks at the end of the verses here. Uh, section 1 to 3, section 4 to 6, section 7 to 9, and section 10 to 12. Each one of those sections has a speaker speaking. And they're all relating to this topic of the kingdom and, and the unfolding kingdom. So the first speaker is obviously the nations. And you'll see at the end of that, they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the nation speaking. Secondly, you see God speaking. God laughs, but then down at the bottom in verse 6, he begins a dialogue and he says, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In the third section, 7 and 9, you see the Messiah himself speaking, the anointed one of God. And then in the final section, the narrator breaks in and tells you what you're responsible to do in light of these other dialogues that have taken place. So again, we're going to see four startling perspectives from this psalm so that we will rightly exalt God's kingdom and his king. And the first one is the rebellion of man. This is verses 1 to 3 here. Look at that with me. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So mankind, if you will, the kingdom of the world is in opposition to God's rule and his king. God has established his king upon his throne and God, in in essence, has anointed this man to be king and all the other nations of the world reject that and, the, and therefore they are in actuality rejecting God because this man is God's appointed ruler. So mankind at his most basic nature hates to subject to God. He hates God. He would kill him if he could get his hands on him. And he hates God's anointed as well. So first what I want you to see, three features of this rebellion to take note of. Man is in rebellion to God, but let's, let's see three features of this rebellion. First is their anarchy, and that's in verse 1. Uh, literally, this reads, Why do they rage, the nations, and the peoples devise the vain things? One of the startling things about this whole psalm is the first couple of verses is set in what we call a chiasm. It's, it's kind of a double chiasm, and it's, it's really startling if you look at it in the original. But... But what that means is that it goes verb, noun, noun, verb. It kind of funnels you in and focuses so that you see what the nations are doing. It's sort of this pattern that they use poetically to focus your thoughts on, okay, you've got people and you've got nations. That's, that's one group. And you've got kings and you've got rulers. That's another group. And what are they doing? And who are they against? And that's what you ought to be asking yourself. The question is, why at the beginning? Do you see that? The very first word, why. It's, it's, it's the writer of this psalm is, is sort of demonstrating his shock and his disbelief that the people of the world would even consider rebelling against God and His King. Why? Why are they doing this? I don't understand. Why are the nations rebelling 
and raging against God. That's the very first word there. Why are the nations raging? Nations is actually the word goyim. Um, and that is sort of the Gentiles. You can understand it as the Gentiles. Why are all the Gentiles raging against God's anointed king of Israel? And the very first word, rage, actually sort of, it's what we call a characteristic perfect. It sort of it characterizes who they are. They are characterized by raging against God's authority. And it's, it's an internal sort of seething. They, they don't want to submit to the rule of God. And so internally, they are hostile towards God. They are raging. Not only are they raging, but more specifically, it says they're devising a vain thing. They're actually not just emotionally angry at God. Now they've taken it to the next level and they're beginning to talk about how they can overthrow God. How can we overthrow Him? You see that in verse verse 3. The word devise, as I told you, is actually taken from the same word uh, in Psalm 1. And it actually is kind of to meditate and to speak kind of under your breath. It, It kind of carries the idea of mumbling. They're meditating on a vain thing or emptiness. And it's really talking about the fact that they have no possibility of overthrowing the king of the universe or God's anointed king over Israel. And so this plotting that they're doing is completely empty. It's the word emptiness. And it, again, the verb here is imperfect and it sort of means that it's already sort of in the midst of the action. They're already doing it. So mankind is hostile to God. They're anarchists. They're, they're looking to overthrow their king. They want to get rid of him. They want to shake him off. They don't want to subject to his sovereignty. And notice that it's, it's, it's the nations and it's the Gentiles and it's, it's everybody. It's the nations and all the peoples. And it's the other rulers and the kings. They all take their stand against God. So they want to kick off and throw off God's anointed one. Secondly, I just want you to see their their arrogance in verse 2. You see that? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together. Same thing. They take their stand, or they literally they set themselves, the kings of the earth, and the rulers, they take counsel together. It's the same sort of pattern there that we saw in verse 1. What you want to see here is the nations, in historically... When God gave the kingdom to David, He set him on top of Zion and his descendants to rule the other nations forever. God said He would give him a kingdom that would endure forever. And as we look at the end times, we see that that kingdom is going to go to Christ. It will be handed off to Him and He will subdue all the nations under His rule. And so that's why the New Testament writers saw this as an application for the New Testament. But it literally says, again, in light of Psalm 1, that they notice that they stand together and they take counsel together. What does Psalm 1 1 say? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners. You see the connection again to Psalm 1? So, again, this two ways idea is amplified now to two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. The word together sort of sticks out here in the text because. Not only are they plotting as individuals to overthrow the king, but they're actually conspiring together as to how they might do this. 
They refuse to subject to the sovereignty of God. So they start talking like prisoners in a prison yard. How are we going to throw off this king? How are we going to get this guy off our back? We don't want to subject to him. We want to do our own thing. We want to be king of the hill. One translation actually says they, they sit in conclave together. Kind of gives it a little different twist. Also, notice the end of verse 2. What, you've, got, you've got this structure, chiasm, chiasm, and then you've got two uses of the preposition against. Do you see that there? Who are they taking counsel against? Who are they trying to kick off? See, it's against God, Yahweh, and against His Messiah is literally what it says in the Hebrew. They want to kick off God and they want to throw off the rule of His Messiah. And here, Messiah, His anointed one, is what it's talking about. The Greek translation of Messiah is Christos. Here they want to throw off the anointed one. In this psalm, it's talking about David and his rule. In the New Testament, they applied it to Christ and His rule. So again, we want to understand this in terms of they hate God, and so they hate anybody who God has installed as king. Rebels. Mankind is rebels. Mankind. Is that is or are? Mankind is rebellious. How's that sound? Third is their announcement. Look at the... I mean, nobody would really think you could throw off the rule of God, really. I mean, would you really think that you could somehow be so foolish as to throw off the rule of God? And you would think, really? Well, yeah. Uh, Look at the next verse, their announcement. This is what they're saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to subject to God. We don't want to come under His leadership. We don't want to come under this anointed ruler. We're going to kick this sovereignty off and we're going to do our own thing. Notice the word saying is not really in the text. If you have it in your translation, it's not really there. It just goes, they're against the Lord and His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart. It's sort of a little more dramatic than that. The idea of saying just helps with the readability. But this is what they're saying under their breath. This is what they're devising in their own hearts. How are we going to throw off God And how are we going to throw off His King? We refuse to subject to Him. As I said, this is the first of four speakers in the psalm. And they're in a fight for freedom. They're in a fight for freedom. They want freedom, all right. But it's freedom from the rule of God that they're after. It's freedom from the rule of God and His King. They refuse to subject themselves to the sovereignty of God. You know, the, the peoples of the earth sort of compare if, if they're unregenerate and God has not changed their desires, they view being under the sovereignty of God as being uh, imprisoned. They don't view it as a lovely thing like we do. They view it as being held captive. Uh, you know, why should we have to subject to this God? We don't want to. And so they devise ways to get out of it. Get these shackles off me. Get them off me. I don't want to be ruled by you or your king. 
unregenerate people are rebels against God and His anointed. They hate their king. They hate him. And they refuse his leadership. As I said, New Testament application. The apostles saw this truth in the New Testament, remember? In the book of Acts, turn, turn in your Bibles. If you have a pew Bible, you can look at page 1092. I'm going to take you to the book of Acts and look at chapter 4. Look at verse uh, 25 to 28, Acts chapter 4. And it says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christos or anointed one. So you see, they've applied this to the New Testament and they say that truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So there you have the kings and the rulers and the peoples and the Gentiles. You see that? It's right back to Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur they killed the Messiah because they refused to subject to him they refused to subject to God's anointed one and the Old Testament the New Testament writers saw Christ as ultimately being through the line of David the rightful heir to the throne of David the Messiah the anointed one of God. And so they, they took Psalm 2 and they applied it to this context. Interestingly, uh, Gamaliel, one of the teachers of Israel, you don't have to turn here, but in Acts 5, 38-42, let me just say one other thing, by the way. Notice while you're there in Acts chapter 4, it says, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said. You see that? That means two things. Number one, Psalm 2 is inspired by the Spirit of God. And it also means that David is the author of it. The New Testament writers understood David to be the writer of Psalm 2. So that again helps us to understand it in light of its historical context. Gamaliel, as I said, Acts chapter 5, 38 to 42 he was one of, the, one of the teachers in Israel, and he understood this idea of this conflict between the two kingdoms. And he had some spiritual insight into the real conflict. And, he, and listen to what he says. And so in the present case, I say to you, verse 38, Acts chapter 5, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. And they took this advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. 
the Christ. See, it's really a fight against God and his Messiah. It's two kingdoms of the world, and they refuse to subject to the Messiah. Let me just say by way of application, as we think about this today, David told you I would tell you things that he didn't have the courage to say, so I'm going to tell you right now, you're all rebels. (laughs) You are all rebels. And if you would have been there in the first century, I guarantee you, you would have plotted to overthrow your Messiah as well. You would have killed him just as quickly as they would have killed him. And don't think you wouldn't for just a moment. Because you, in your unregenerate state, would have refused to submit to God's king. And in fact, as believers, let me tell you something, we refuse to submit to God's king even as believers. I think we have lordship issues all over the place. See, freedom is a good thing. I love freedom. One of my favorite movies is uh, Braveheart. Right? Freedom! I love that movie. But we're talking about freedom against a tyrannical king. When we talk about freedom, wanting freedom from God, that's evil. It's evil and we need to call it what it is. Believers and unbelievers alike try to shake off the sovereignty of God every day in their life. They refuse to submit to Him. Our fight for our rights. We want our rights. We refuse to give up our rights. Our desire for freedom has made our rights an idol. We are so stinking independent. Yes, I use the word stinking. We are so stinking independent that we refuse to subject to anybody. We have rights. I don't want my rights violated. Even if it means subjecting to God. But First Peter, turn to First Peter. Let me walk you through something real quick. Submission and subjection is one of the Christian virtues. It is, is one of the defining characteristics of what it means to be a believer. Look at verse 9. Chapter 2, 1 Peter. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Drop down to verse 13. Therefore, in light of that truth, this is how you're going to exemplify your newfound status as a possession of God. Verse 13, submit. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or the one in authority. Drop down to verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Submit. Verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. Christ submitted to those that were in charge, and they were evil. 
But it all falls under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. Look at chapter 3. You're not off the hook there because now he says, in the same way that Christ submitted, now you wives need to submit. You wives need to submit to your husbands. And if that weren't enough, down, drop down to verse 7. You husbands, in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way that Christ submitted. This is one of the biggest Christian virtues that there is, is subjection to those who are in authority because no authority exists apart from the sovereignty of God. See, as believers, God has changed our allegiance. Has He not? Has He changed your allegiance? You are no longer on the wrong losing team. You are now on the team that's going to win. Right? God has changed our desires. And, and let me suggest something to you. If your desires have not changed and you still don't want to submit to God, that's not a good thing. That's a very bad thing. I would suggest to you that if you have that many lordship problems and you refuse to subject to your king, you're probably not saved. You're probably not saved and you need to take another trip by the cross. If you are still rebelling against God and His King, and as David would say, you have lordship issues, right? You better make sure that you're a citizen of the right kingdom. You're either in one kingdom or the other. There is no third option. There are not three kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and evil and Satan, or there's the kingdom of God and light. And you're in one kingdom or you're in the other. No third option. You need to understand that man is in rebellion against God and consequently against his king. Second startling perspective, verses 4 to 6, back in Psalm 2. So in response... Here, this is the reaction of God. What does God do in light of their plotting to overthrow Him? What is His reaction? (laughs) He laughs. God laughs. Here's the real reality, okay? God is up in the heavens looking down at the earth and He sees this puny little ant shaking His fist in His face and all He can do is go, that's pathetic. It's pathetic. It's sad. It's sad. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. And this is what He says. But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, My holy mountain. I want you to notice three reactions here in this section, verses 4 to 6. They're meant to shock us. They're meant to startle us into reality. We need to think about God's sovereignty. We need to adjust our thinking in these areas. In his first reaction, look at verse 4. It's amusement. It's amusement. 
God is amused at our futile efforts to overthrow him. God sits in the heavens and laughs. It's actually a participle here. It's, it's actually the one sitting in the heavens, and it's, it's describing God. This is who God is. He is the one who dwells in the heavens. It's where he sits. He's enthroned in heaven, and he sits up there watching the foolish plans of man trying to overthrow his rule. So the sitting describes who he is, not what he does. It's not that God's just sitting up there. He is the one who dwells in the heavens. And this is one of only two times in the Bible where it says that God laughs. Only two times God laughs. The other instance is in Psalm 37:13. You don't have to turn there. But neither case is God enjoying himself. This is not laughter of enjoyment. This is derisive laughter. This is mocking. It's not amusing. Uh, that he's not laughing because it's amusing. He's laughing because it's pathetic. One author said this. He said he's laughing because the distance between them and him is infinite. And he derides them by allowing the boundless stupidity of the infinitely little one to come to a climax and then he thrusts him down to the earth undeceived. It's an anthropomorphism. It's, it's what we call describing God in human terms. God's reaction is being stated in human terms. And, and in the Hebrew, these are imperfect verbs. And so what that means is it's like the psalmist is watching God's reaction unfold. He's watching God break into laughter. He's watching God scoff and deride and mock their stupidity. It's meant to shock us. It's meant to shock us. Secondly, look at verse 5. His second reaction is anger. The, the mockery and the, and the uh, laughter turns into anger. Notice it says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And this verse sort of builds in a logical progression on the one before it. And it's like a, it's like a peal of thunder in the heavens, if you will. God speaks. He laughs and then he speaks in the heavens peal like a lightning strike. And he speaks to them in his anger and his fury. See, based upon their evil plan to overthrow God and his king, God looks at it and he laughs and then he gets angry. He gets angry. And then he speaks in his anger and he terrifies them in his fury. This idea of terrifying them in his fury is, is focusing on the effect of God's angry response. And, and the word then, I want you to see this, the word then, don't skip past that because um, it's significant. I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. But, uh, but just understand that it's not there by accident. And the apostles never quoted... Um, some of these verses in the New Testament, and they didn't for a reason. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Kyle and Delich, uh, some famous Old Testament commentators, they say, then he begins at once to utter the actual language of his wrath to his foes and confounds them in the heat of his anger and disconcerts them utterly. When God speaks, 
It's frightening. It's frightening. And just like the first cluster of verses closed with someone speaking, now we actually get to hear what God's going to say. Okay, look at the end here. Look at verse 6. This is his announcement. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And the way this is structured, the word me appears actually before the verb, and it kind of sticks out on its own. And it's saying, I myself have done this. It's emphatic. I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And when God installs his king, he subjugates everybody under him. Such was the case with David, and such will be the case in the end times with the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. When Christ assumes the throne of God, it's the end. It's the end for the rebels. Zion, this word Zion appears 40 times in the book of Psalms. You probably have wondered why it's there. It was originally a Canaanite city conquered by David. You look at 2 Samuel 5.7. And later Zion came to refer to the temple area and then to the entire city of Jerusalem. So it's talking about David's ascension to the throne in Jerusalem. This idea of holy hill is a, a synonym for the temple mount. So the point is that Christ in the end times will be installed on Zion. He'll rule from there as the high holy hill which is the resting place of the divine presence of God. And therefore, it excels all the other heights of the earth. It was assigned as the seat of David's throne. It will be assigned as the seat of Christ's throne in the future. So God's resolution is to install His King on Zion. And when He does, it will signal the end for the rebels. God will put down all of His enemies. Again, you need to look through this psalm to the future with eyes of faith and see the typology here. Right? Christ will assume the throne of Zion one day. He'll put down all of His enemies and He'll do it from the throne of David which will be here on earth. The Davidic throne is not in heaven. And this is where a lot of confusion of the end times comes in. The Davidic throne is here on earth and Christ will rule for a thousand years on a literal Davidic throne. So, despite all the quotations in the New Testament from the psalm, the New Testament writers never touched verses 4 to 6. They never quoted it in the New Testament. And why is that? Well, they saw direct application of Christ on all the other verses, but the word then, as I said, I believe it kept them back from these verses because they saw the then as being the tribulation. When God speaks in His wrath and His anger, it's time for the tribulation. And when that happens, God will speak to the rebels in His fury and in His anger. You can look at Revelation. I'm going to turn you one place real quick just to tell you what I'm thinking on this. Look at Revelation chapter 11. And verse 15. says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, His anointed. And He will reign forever and ever. Drop down to verse 18. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. You see the connection? This is the seventh trumpet, which includes all of the seven bowl judgments in Revelation, or really vials. But but this is the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And the voice from heaven comes, and the kingdoms and the nations are about to be handed over to the Christ, to God's anointed ruler. It'll be then, then at that time, that God will speak in His anger and terrify them who are in opposition to Him. So, how do I make some application of this? How do I draw this to you? What does it mean sitting here this morning for you? It means that if you have not subjected to God's King yet, He has mercifully given you another opportunity to do so this morning. Listen to me on this, beloved. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning, there is coming a day when the Lord will indeed speak in His burning anger and in His fury, and He will terrify the rebels. And if you are still in rebellion to God, that means you. And when the tribulation starts, it will be too late. You can either subject to God now and your King, who is a merciful benevolent king, or you can subject on the other side of the tribulation, being driven to your knees by the wrath of God. You have a choice to make. There will be no place to run. There will be no place to hide when the tribulation comes. You will have to endure the wrath of God. And every single enemy of God and His Messiah will be put down at that time. It will be a cataclysmic conflict between the kingdoms of the world. God's kingdom of light and of His Son will come. And it will put down the kingdom of darkness. And the question is, which side are you going to find yourself on? Which kingdom are you going to be in? Which kingdom are you a subject of? Which side are you on? Do you want freedom from the sovereignty of God? you want to shake off God's sovereignty? Go right ahead. But that puts you on the opposing side. It puts you on the opposing side. And what will you say to God to turn away His wrath when it comes? What will you say to Him? You think it over. When He comes for His church at the beginning of the tribulation, it will be too late. It will be too late. No one knows when that's going to be. The Bible clearly says it will come like birth pangs upon a pregnant woman or like a thief who breaks into your home in the middle of the night. You won't have any idea it's coming. It will just be upon you. The time to take refuge in God's King is now. Now. When? Now. Before 
he speaks in his fury. Before he speaks in his wrath. If you have not sought refuge in God's appointed king, if you are still in rebellion to his rule, then I am calling on you this day to repent. Repent and abandon your ridiculous efforts to throw off the sovereignty of God. Embrace his king. See, we live in a time and a culture where Christ has been feminized. He's been softened. Jesus is my boyfriend. It's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the Lord of Glory who reigns over all the other rulers of the earth. He is King of the Hill. See, we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everyone will be in subjection to Him. And you can either be subject here and now to the benevolent King or you can be driven to your knees on the other side in His wrath and in His anger. What will you do? What will you do? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, for our King, and that You, our Father, have changed our affections and made us not God-haters anymore, but God-lovers and citizens of the Kingdom of Light. Lord, we thank You for that, for Your great mercy towards us this morning. And I would pray for any here who have hardened their heart against You, our Father, that You would indeed be merciful to them in the same way. Father, please break their stubborn pride. Please, please, Father, grant them a heart that can know You and love You and feel You. And Father, for those who are professing believers, I pray too that they would subject themselves to Your Lordship. Lord, I would ask these things in Christ's name, our Savior and our King.